Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. Bring us together in large groups, put money on the line, and anything could happen. This is a show where current and aspiring business leaders can understand the people dynamics at play in their organizations and learn skills and techniques to improve their chances of long-term business success. This week, my guest is Gary Nessner. Gary retired from the FBI in 2003 following a 30-year career. 23 of those years were spent as an FBI hostage negotiator and he retired as chief of the FBI's Crisis Negotiation Unit Critical Incident Response Group, the first person to hold that position. In that capacity, he was heavily involved in numerous hostage, barricade, and suicide incidents covering prison riots, right-wing militia standoffs, religious zealot sieges, terrorist embassy takeovers, airplane hijackings, and over 120 overseas kidnapping cases involving American citizens. Following his career with the FBI, Gary joined Control Risks, an international risk consultancy assisting clients in managing overseas kidnap incidents. He's the author of Stalling for Time, My Life as an FBI Hostage Negotiator, one of two books used as the basis for the television miniseries Waco. Gary is uh, an incredible guy. It was very humbled to have him on the show today. He had a prolific career, and I would encourage everyone to go out and read his book, Stalling for Time, in which he provides just a sampling of the stories throughout his career, but really it's pretty incredible. In this conversation, we get into the value of relationships, listening to understand, and he shares some techniques for better conversations. I could not be more excited to share this conversation with you. And so here is Gary Nessner. And we are live with Gary Nessner. Gary, I really appreciate your time today. I'm, I could not be more excited to dive into the content and I figured we just kind of get right into it because I probably have more questions than we can cram into an hour here. So first observation, we've spoken once. We know somebody in common who has spoken highly of you and I've read your book and you seem to have an incredible knack for people. Is that an innate trait of yours or is that something that you've developed over time? It's probably a, a combination. I mean, I, I certainly would consider myself a people person. I, I enjoy meeting new people and uh, getting to know them. But, you know, some of it's uh, a developed skill as well. You know, as a negotiator, you sort of learn that not just in terms of resolving a conflict, but just in everyday life, being open to uh, other people and hearing about their experiences and their views is, is, you know, almost always a worthwhile activity. So in your book, you talk about getting into the FBI early in your life and, kind of always knowing that that was a calling of yours. What made that a calling? You know, what drew you to it? And then within that work, it can go a lot of different ways. What drew you to the negotiation element? Well, the FBI, I mean, again, I talk about it in my book, Stalling for Time. I'm, it's just um, just one of those things as a, as a young kid, it, it just uh, appealed to me that it looked like an exciting career, you know, chasing gangsters and bank robbers and spies and all that stuff. And it pretty much was all of that, you know. It, was, it certainly wasn't disappointing in the least. And you know, I wanted to do something that wasn't everyday and mundane, or what I would have perceived as uninteresting. So, uh, so it, it just had that appeal to me. I'm mean, one of my best friends wanted to be a doctor when, since he was a little kid, and that's what he became. Another one wanted to be a pilot, and that's what he became. So, I don't know if it's a generational thing, but most of us kind of stake out our future turf pretty early, at least in my circle. But when I became an FBI agent, I mean, I had no sense of, of negotiations. And in fact, it really didn't exist. It only got started by the New York City Police Department in the mid-70s, and the FBI glommed onto it very quickly and sort of pushed out the uh, parameters of it and, and a, a more in-depth appreciation of, of how it worked. And you know, we taught it around the United States and around the world. But So that was even a very new thing in the FBI, and I heard about it and got it received a presentation on it and uh it just 
just really intrigued me, O'Brien. I mean, I just thought, you know, to use your communication skills to diffuse conflict and, you know, hopefully achieve peaceful outcomes, it seemed like more than, more than a worthy uh, activity for me. So, you know, it just serendipitously sort of progressed that way in my career, and um, it was a great experience. What was the prevailing wisdom at the time in how you would resolve those situations? Well, in, in law enforcement, you know, up, up until the time that New York sort of, you know, developed this, it was, you know, there's a robbers in a bank or a jewelry store, whatever it might be, and the police show up and they say, hey, come out, surrender. And the bad guys would say no and said, okay, then they'd go in and get them. And, uh, you know, the outcomes were all too often unpleasant. I mean, the police officers would get killed. Um, um, they would often kill the perpetrator, or if there was hostages or victims involved, they might meet their demise. So, you know, New York was thinking there should be a better way to do this. And then it made perfect sense. And it immediately began to yield some better outcomes. You know, and I always used to tell people, I think the public generally believes that this is all about just saving the hostage and there's nothing else on our mind. And, and that's fine. But the real reason law enforcement deploys negotiations is so police officers don't have to go into harm's way and, and you know, not come home to their families at night because we could have avoided that had we gone about managing the incident in, in, a, in a more thoughtful and patient way. And I think that's borne out time and time. You know, at this juncture, and I haven't seen the latest stats, but we used to keep them in the FBI. Uh, hostage negotiation succeeds about 90% of the time, and there's almost wow. nothing in law enforcement that comes remotely close to that. Yeah. So it, it tells you an awful lot about what valuable result or what positive result you can achieve if you slow things down, lower the tension, de-escalate you know, um, don't raise the level of the confrontation and begin to talk with people in a, you know, in a, in a fair and realistic way. You don't lie to them. You don't uh, deceive them if you can avoid all of that. But, you know, you basically are faced with situations where perpetrators are, are left with pretty simple choices. It's either cooperate with the police or run the risk of being seriously injured or, or killed. And fortunately for us, you know, there's more people that want to live than want to die. The biggest area where death does occur is when we're dealing with somebody that's highly suicidal or a romantic relationship that's gone bad and the guy, you know, violates his restraining order and he's back there with his wife or girlfriend and the police show up and, you know, he ends up killing her and killing himself. Those are terribly tragic. And we do have a fair amount of success in dealing with those. But when there's loss of life, there's typically that history of a strong interpersonal relationship, one of conflict, it is exceedingly rare for, say, a bank robber to kill a hostage that they have no prior relationship with. I mean, I'm not saying it never happens, but it's, it's extraordinarily rare. You know, when somebody comes into a bank or a jewelry store, they're there to get money. <laughs> they're really not there to, you know, kill people or become suicidal. Yeah, likely haven't processed exactly what it would mean to take a hostage and actually have to take that yeah, person's life. And most of them don't plan that far. They, they assume they're going to be successful in their efforts to get money and they're going to leave and everything will be fine. But, you know, these aren't always the brightest people in the world. They make mistakes. The alarm goes off, the police show up. And now, now they threaten to harm a hostage for two essential reasons. One is to keep the police at bay. If you come in here, I'll kill a hostage. And the second reason is to press for a demand. I want a getaway car. I want to be able to take this money and so forth and so on. And when the process gets slowed down and, and there's a de-escalation that occurs, they increasingly come to understand that their options are not as great as they thought. Their ability to control and dictate things to the police is not nearly as great as they thought it was. You know, they initially think, I've got hostages. I can make these people do whatever I want. And when those things don't happen, you know, they're left with the stark reality of, you know, comply or die. And, um, you know, again, fortunately for us, most of them see the wisdom in taking the easier route. Sure. There's a lot of misconceptions around hostage or crisis negotiation. I mean, I've, so I've read 
a book by one of your colleagues, Never Split the Difference, uh, which yep. I'm a Chris big fan to, of. Yeah, yeah. Chris used to uh, work for me in the crisis negotiation unit. Good guy, good book. And and I, I've taken his class, and so I've I've heard some of the stories through there, which got me paying attention to it more. Just how it's characterized in. Hollywood or in the media. And then I read your book and there's a lot of great insight into how the process works. And it just, it occurs to me just how black and white we, we think it is having seen Hollywood movies growing up in the eighties and nineties, uh, versus what actually happens. And, and it would be interesting just to have you talk about when you show up on scene at a new incident, what is the process? Like what goes through your head? What's the team look like? How does that work? Well, you you mentioned the most important ingredient, and that is a team. I, and I can segue that into the Hollywood piece, which is typically where they get it wrong. They most often have a, an individual negotiator working by himself or herself. In fact, that's how they did it in the Waco movie I was involved in. You know, there was um, uh, Michael Shannon who was playing me, and then there's one other negotiator. In reality, there's eight, nine, ten negotiators per 12-hour shift. I mean, it's, it, on a large-scale operation like that, it can be quite intense with a whole range of tasks for members of the negotiation team to perform. In a more classic setting where the police would go to the jewelry store robbery, using that, going back to that uh, sort of example, um, you know, you might just have two or three negotiators there, you know, working out of the back of a van or in an adjacent building. And their job is to get to the scene, and, and hopefully it has been contained by responding units and whether or not a tactical team has shown up yet to take over that containment. And then there's an effort to reach out and open up a dialogue with the perpetrator. And through that process, we hope to learn more about them because very often the police have no idea who they're dealing with until we can identify the subject and look at a criminal history and perhaps a mental health history. But we try to make that contact and you know, get a sense of their emotional levels and, you know, what's causing this. Is this a, a way to get money? Is this revenge against a, an employer or ex-spouse? Uh, what is going on here? You know, that is best determined through a dialogue. So we come across as wanting to know what's going on and what triggered events. There's usually, in the emotional uh, range of the spectrum, there's usually going to be some triggering event that happened within 24 hours, a restraining order, uh, you know, a, a bill came through that the criminal couldn't pay, um, you know, you know, was kicked out of his, his apartment. Uh, there's usually something that, that triggers, you know, these behaviors in, in an already relatively unstable person. So we try to find that out. And we try to address those needs when we're talking to them. So uh, while a particular police officer, FBI agent, would be doing the talking and they would have a coach and, and some assistance, there's other negotiators who contacting family members, friends, former employees, prison records. What do we know about this person? How do they behave in tense situations? Are they very impulsive, quick to anger, or you know, are they generally a, a reasonable person in, in most situations? So all of these are are pieces of a puzzle board. You know, you you can sort of equate this to a you know a ten thousand piece <laughs> puzzle board and the more we're at this, the longer it goes, the better we sense we have of the picture that's unfolding, you know, and there's always going to be some missing pieces, but, you know, we develop enough of a, of a picture that we can sort of devise a strategy. What, what was really important to this person? Is it, you know, talking to his girlfriend on the phone? Is it um, being arrested um, so that then out the back door, so the media doesn't see him? I mean, what, what are the needs he has and what reasonable accommodations can we make? To, to meet those. We is try pretty, to avoid... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, just, just regarding their motivations, is it usually pretty clear? Can they articulate pretty well what they want? Or do you really have to dive down deeper and deeper and deeper to come up with the stuff that's going to change their behavior? Yeah, I mean, in a, in a classic hostage situation, and I should define that, that's a situation where somebody's holding someone and threatening to harm them in order to, for, to force a, a third party, you know, usually law enforcement, to do something that they can't do on their own. So they are using that leverage to try to get their way. Now, that's a 
a very substantive sort of uh, activity. They have a clear goal in mind. It's goal-oriented is what I meant to say. But in reality, what we found through the years is probably close to 90% of situations are on the other end of the spectrum. They're totally emotionally driven, people acting out from anger, frustration, confusion, bewilderment. You know, they've been fired. You know, we've all heard about the workplace violence. The guy gets fired from the factory and he goes back and shoots his boss and his coworkers going postal, that old term that we used to yeah. hear. We've had a couple of big ones here near me in Chicago over the last couple of years, which have been unfortunate. And of course, we've seen the school shootings. And typically you'll find that in that school setting, there's a sense of the, the perpetrator, the, the student that they've been made fun of, mistreated, you know, ostracized, whatever it might be. And so they want to get even with people who have been mean to them and mistreated them, whatever it is. So that's all kind of understandable. But But really... We go into most situations assuming that there's some emotional baggage that we're dealing with here. You know, uh, I used to have a colleague that would say that, you know, their, their emotional cup is overflowing. And, uh, you know, we have to try to settle that down. And in those cases, you know, we, we use a graph when we teach. It's a, it's a childhood teeter-totter. And, you know, it's kind of like this. One ends up, the other ends down. And what we find is when emotions are high, rational thinking and behavior are low, and you can't change that. That is an automatic fact of human behavior. So our job is not so much to come up with this brilliant solution to the person's problem, but to first lower the uh, emotional content of, of, of the conversation. And when that happens, you see what happens. As emotions go down, one's ability to think and behave rationally increases. I mean, that's kind of the whole process in a nutshell right there, O'Brien. I mean, and it, and it, it works in... in almost any phase of life, even, you know, domestic problems you have with your spouse or an argument with a friend or a sibling or a neighbor, you know, when you're angry and tension's high, it's probably not the best time to solve a problem. You know, it's why we have a waiting period to buy guns, you know, and uh, well, at least I hope we still do. And it's just the condition of life in a highly complex society. There's a lot of people that live stressful lives. And, and our job as police is, Instead of showing up and giving them that Jack Webb police voice, sir, put your gun down, come out, or we're going to have to come in and get you. I mean, it's about as unempathetic as you could uh, imagine. But what we do is we say, hey, you know, O'Brien, my name's Gary. I'm, I'm with the police, and uh, I'm not sure what's going on inside, but I'd like to help you if I can. It puts them off a little bit because they don't expect that from the police. They don't expect somebody to be respectful, uh, genuine, sincere. and what usually makes somebody come out, and th this is an interesting little observation for your listeners, you know, we used to ask perpetrators when they surrendered, what, what did we say that made them, you know, what was the key? What was the magic bullet to convince you to come out? And the answer was always the same, surprisingly. They always said, it's not what you said, but it's the way you said it. And if you stop and consider that for a moment, the power of the projection of an empathic, sincere genuine approach. I mean, obviously some people can fake that, but it's most effective when it's sincere and it's genuine, you know? And in fact, when I'm negotiating or when I did in my, in my former life, you know, I, I really do want to see them come out alive. You know, I, I hate to see them hurt themselves or somebody else. So it's not a very hard or difficult task to, to express myself in a manner that's in keeping with the way I'm thinking. So, but sometimes, you know, police officers are human beings. They get frustrated, they get angry. And sometimes you have perpetrators who are calling us names and belittling us and argumentative. And, but, you know, you just persist. It, it takes two to tango. It takes two to argue. And if you continue to be that stable, modifying influence, eventually they'll come around and say, you know, scary guy's not such a bad guy. You know, I'm, I haven't had much luck with the cops in the past, but I, I, I feel as though when this guy tells me they won't beat me up when they arrest me, that I don't think they will. So it's that kind of thing. I want to dive a little deeper into that, if you don't mind, because, you know, and I've heard it several times that that tone is almost more important, if not more important than the actual words that you're saying. And, you know, I, like a lot of people, struggle with tone sometimes, especially, you know, that knee jerk reaction. You can say something that if you were to write it down, seems harmless, but it's just the way you deliver it that can 
cause somebody to, you know, rile their feathers or ruffle their feathers or, you know, send somebody off the wrong way or make them have their own emotional response. How do you train yourself or how do you guide other negotiators to keep calm when somebody's spitting venom at them, when they've said something personal that, that hits that chord, you know, that makes them want to react? How do you keep calm in those situations? Well, it can be, it can be a challenge. I mean, the very first, if you were taking a negotiation course I was teaching, probably the first minute of the first hour, you would hear me talk about self-control. Because the premise being that if you can't control your own emotions, how can you expect to influence someone else's? Some people are, are, are naturally uh, calm, cool, and collected in a, in a tense situation. Others, most of us have to focus in on a little bit and, and try to stay in that state. And frankly, there are some people that just, you know, are, are never going to be able to be uh, successful in that regard because they don't have that, that self-control. They, they're quick to anger. They're, uh, you know, maybe a little too volatile or emotional. But, you know, most of the people that are recruited to negotiations are volunteers, and they tend to be, uh, you know, veteran, experienced police officers, FBI agents who are really good interviewers. They're good interrogators. They're good at getting witnesses to tell us things. I mean, because being a law enforcement officer is all about getting information and cooperation. So the skill sets there, you know, are, are very similar to, to what a negotiator needs. But I, I think you have to, as you do these things, I mean, you may be having a bad day and you may be frustrated, but you realize in this particular incident, now I've got to be sure I stay in this zone of projecting care and concern. You know, we're not trying to make cops social workers, you know, but but and there's times to be firm. You know, a guy says, I want this and I want that. You just say, you know, I'm sorry, we're not going to be able to do that. It's okay. You just don't have to go further than that and be confrontational and uh, say, what are you, an idiot? You think we'd do that for you? You know, you know I mean, that would be too far and that would be relationship <laughs> blocking uh, or destroying. But, yeah, I, I just think you have to work at, you know, having a sense of yourself and how you, you come across. And, um, you know, it's tough. Uh, you have a young one. You'll, it's tough for parents because, um, you know, there's times where your kids drive you crazy, you know, and, and you, you, you always picture yourself as this thoughtful parent that sits down and spends endless time, you know, like Beaver's dad, you know, and leave it to Beaver, you know. I got all the time in the world. Sit down, tell me your problems. But in reality, life is pretty hectic sometimes because I said so, do it, you know. <laughs> so we can all learn from that a little bit. Well, that's why I'm so interested in that because, I mean, a lot, the listeners to this are not hostage negotiators, nor hopefully will they ever find themselves in that situation. But, I mean, the, the dynamics of this play out all the time, right? There's... It's human relationships. Uh, people are know, trying to get leverage over others to get something through at work, or you're trying to negotiate with your kids or some, there's some interpersonal interaction and that self-control can be really hard. So that's, I was curious if there's any techniques that you teach for self-control or, or any kind of process so people can walk themselves into a state of greater self-control. I think you have to slow things down and, and, and really focus on listening to what the other person ha has to say. There's two things that you really do to be a good listener. It's a restatement of content and a reflection of feelings. So there's two parts of any argument, issue, concern that someone is expressing. One is the facts. You know, I'm angry because my boss is a jerk and he did this and he did that. Well, that that's the story that you as a good listener have to feed back. It sounds like your boss let you go today and you're really concerned about your future with the company. But, but the second part of reflection of feelings, anytime you hear somebody express a feeling, you, you tell them, you know, O'Brien, you sound really, you sound really confused by what happened. And maybe I get that wrong. I might get points for saying that, but maybe I heard it wrong. And you say, no, I'm not confused. I'm, I'm disappointed. So you clarify for me. Well, that's done me no harm whatsoever, because now I know, uh, as you've just clarified for me, that it's, you know, disappointment is the, is the driving word that you've used to describe your situation. So that's what I have to key in on. You know, we used to use the, the old metaphor of a donut, you know, in the, the center of the hole, if you draw a donut on, on paper or 
or better yet, an M&M candy, the chocolate center and the candy on the outside. The chocolate is the story of what's going on. And, and the, the candy on the outside is the feelings that surround it. So it's not always what happens to us in life. It's, it's how we feel about it. You know, what may be a crisis for you or me may not be a slightest concern to somebody else and vice versa. But if somebody feels they're in crisis, then, then they are. <laughs> you know, so we, when we feed back to them and we're asking them open-ended questions and we're seeking to clarify what they're going through and how they feel about it, we, we need to respond to those two things, the story and the feelings, the chocolate candy and, and the, the, the colored candy on the outside. Again, re, restatement of, of what they're saying and a, a reflection of their feelings. So that, that's the, the motivators. It's the, it seems like it's the, the story that's motivating them and then the emotion that's motivating them. And you need to yeah. re, be able to re-articulate both back to them. Yeah, I mean, eventually you hope to get to a point in a difficult conversation where you can move into problem solving and you can discuss options and alternatives to, you know, people tend to get tunnel vision. They say, you know, I'm the only way to get out of this is to kill my boss, you know, and, and I can say, well, you know, killing your boss isn't going to get your job back. And that's certainly true and makes sense. But maybe they're not ready to hear that yet because of that emotional state we're in. But, you know, we, we have to take the time to listen and a big mistake people make is they say, I understand, I understand. You really need to demonstrate you understand. And the best way to demonstrate that is to paraphrase it, to put in your own words what you think that person has just told you. And when you do that, it's powerful because people want to be listened to and they want to be understood. So, you know, we ask those open-ended questions to get additional, can you tell me more about that? I'm not sure if I fully understand. You know, that sounds like that was a really challenging experience. What else happened that day? You know, we ask those good questions that don't require a simple yes or no, where, where they have to give us a more detailed answer. And then we feed it back in our own words, and then we attach to that the feelings we're hearing the person articulate. When you do those things, there is no more powerful tool of social influence than doing things I just described. Again, if you look at light, look, look at the protesters on the street the last several weeks around the country. I know people look at it different ways. Some people think they're, you know, expressing a political concern. Others think they're looters and robbers and arsonists and, you know, whatever. You know, I think a vast majority of people that I've seen out there are saying, I want to be heard. You know, there's something that's important to me. may not be important to you. You may not agree with it, but they're saying, I want to be heard. So if we deny that opportunity for them to be heard, we're probably only encouraging uh, f further misbehavior. But if we can find a mechanism, and some cities have done that, to open up a dialogue, to engage, we stand a better chance, although nothing's guaranteed, but we stand a better chance of addressing their needs and giving them a sense that, yep, we're hearing you. <laughs> I hear what you have to say. You are upset. You're very irritated because this case and that case and these things happened and you described how this concerned you. You know, when we can really articulate those things, we don't have to agree with their assessment or say, you're right or you're wrong. We just have to say, here's what I hear you saying. And it's a powerful, powerful thing. And, you know, it even comes into sales. You know, before you put on your super duper salesman's hat and start telling some client what they need, you might want to invest a little bit of time in hearing what they think they need and what sort of problems they're trying to address. And that may give you an opportunity then to craft something unique to them that might, might address their needs perhaps in a better way than they're doing it now. And you can add value to them. But I mean, the first step is really, well, I'll tell you what everything's about. Everything in life is about relationship. There is nothing that is not about relationships. So, you know, you have probably uh, friends from your childhood that you're still friends with or from a young age. Sure. And you can make a lot of mistakes with them. You know, you can piss them off. You can fail to do this. They can forget to do that. They can insult you here. But you forgive that because you have history. You have... Yeah, that bank account is pretty high. The bank account's pretty high. And you're going to put up with an awful... The same thing we do with our spouses. But when a complete stranger does that, you know, they've just disinvested. So, you know, you, you, if you're in a new relationship as a salesperson or a negotiator in a tense situation, you, you really got to work hard at demonstrating your 
worthiness and your genuineness. Can, can I ask one question about the uh, stating that back to them? Because so I'm, I'm in sales and we do talk about that quite a bit about reiterating what they say, say, say it back to them. But it can feel kind of awkward to have somebody say, well, I really want X. And then you say, well, it sounds like you really want X. It's like, yeah, that's what I just that's what I just told you. So is it that simple that people just respond to that or what's the art in doing that? Well, it's like anything else. I think I think you can make it sound uh, too formulatic or, or whatever the word is, you know, but I, but I think if you find creative ways, this is uh, what my company needs. You know, uh, we, we need to have a more reliable supplier in order to be able to fulfill the orders, uh, you know, down the chain. And you say it, it, it sounds like you'd like to reduce the concerns you have about getting what you need. You know, so you, you can reframe it in your own words and basically let them know I heard what you said and what your problem is. There are times where, particularly in a tense situation, where you may repeat verbatim what they say, but th- that does can become a broken record, you know. And, uh, yeah. It seems similar with emotions, too, like in a business setting to say, it sounds like this is really bothering you or it sounds like you feel like you haven't gotten what you deserve. Like to bring that emotion into it seems like it's something that shouldn't be done in a business setting. But it it seems like it really shouldn't be done in a hostage negotiation setting. And so if you're saying that that's really the human element that brings people together, then it seems like it would apply to any conversation you're having. I think it does. But, you know, you've got to be careful that you change it up a little bit. If you keep saying you sound like, you sound like, you sound like, you know, you say, I, I hear this. It appears to me that this is where your major concern is. I mean, if you if you try to mix up the way you deliver that acknowledgement, um, I think you probably come across in a more sincere and genuine way. You know, but a lot of that's driven by really wanting to know. I mean, it's not a contrived, okay, here's my game plan to pretend like I'm interested in what they have to say. I mean, you should go into saying, I'm really interested in finding out. And then it becomes less contrived, less formulatic, more, you know, it, it, it's just easier to always think in the context of making sure they know that I'm understanding what they're saying. Um, there's different ways to do that. But yes, it does work. It's, it's the most powerful manner of influence that we have. You know, um, there's, there's others, you know, there's books on influence, you know, reciprocity and you know, all these sorts of things, and they all come in key. But for me, the core ingredient is relationship. You know, and it may not happen automatically. I mean, you as a salesperson may may lose this business with this client, but if you've set up the relationship properly, they may come back to you later on when they look to renew their contract in two years and have to get some competing bids and maybe have some unhappiness with the person that got the job, and then they come out to you again. It's your opportunity to make another impression on them and, and, and try to make the sale. I mean, so, you yeah, know, I have the most recent client I just picked up. Actually, we were the runner up 10 years ago and wound up keeping a great relationship with them. And, you know, they were getting what they needed for a long time and then they stopped getting what they needed and we were able to come in cause we had a good relationship. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, uh, again, I, I mentioned it earlier, I believe, you know, people want to work with people they like and they feel are reliable and dependable and, you know, when I was in the private sector, I would, you know, uh, work for a consulting company that was doing security stuff, overseas security stuff. And you know, I never really lost any business because I developed those relationships with the clients and they knew and I knew inevitably problems would be encountered. But what they also knew and was correct, that if there was a problem they brought to my attention, I took care of it. Uh, you know, I unscrewed it up for lack of a better term. And there's a lot of value in that. You know, I, I can't promise you 100% perfect, there'll never be a mistake. But what I can promise you, if there is a problem, I'm on it and I will get it fixed to your satisfaction. Well, that means a lot to me. You know, in any business, this, the salesperson is totally disconnected from the client relationship servicing. And, you know, I know that's a model a lot of people use and that's fine. But but I, I want to know when I'm buying something from someone, you know, I, I want to know that they're going to follow through if I have a problem. Yeah. The person who's making the promise is the person who can deliver on the promise. I think so. Yeah. I, yeah. I really do. Yeah. yeah. I, think I think that's, that's important too. And I think that's kind of what happens in a negotiation. You know, this will be 
may be funny to hear, but as a negotiator, when something positive happens with the perpetrator, so to speak, the hostage taker, if something good happens, they're pleased with what we've done, I take credit for it personally. I got that done for you. If there's a problem that he voices and is concerned about, I blame it on somebody else. Now, that, that simple formula <laughs> is, is used by a lot of people every day in, in uh, government and work to try to elevate themselves up. And I don't mean it in that sense, but we're trying to forge a relationship that allows us to influence them. So when something good happens, you know, when, if we decide to send them food for releasing hostages, you know, I said, you know, I, I was able to convince my boss to do that because you and I are working good together here and I appreciate it. And you let that person go. And that's, that's a good, we're working together properly now. And that's a good thing. I, I want him to be, to some extent, beholden to me. And if something bad happens, I want to say like, eh, you know, I was totally unaware of that. I didn't know that helicopter was going to fly over your house so low. And I can see why that would bother you. And I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen again. That's ridiculous. It shouldn't have happened. I'm blaming somebody else. That's in, that's interesting. So I just want to explore that a little bit because I, I think about my own client relationships. And so the way that, that my business is structured is, so I'm the salesperson, but then ultimately I have responsibility for my clients to make sure they have a great experience. And so if something gets screwed up, it's generally screwed up by the team. And if, but if something goes right, it's generally done by the team as well, even, even it, or they come to me and then I fix it. And like, that would be the case where I can fix the problem, but it's generally created by somebody else. But I try to communicate it the other way. You know, I try to communicate it where if there's a problem, I'm taking responsibility for it. And if there's something good that happened, I'm trying to have the team take credit for it. But you know, if you do that in the right way, you are in essence taking credit. You know, I, they thank you for something that was done very well and they thank you individually and you say, you know, I, I'm, I was glad to be able to help, but fortunately I got a great team working with me. You know, you don't want to say, uh, don't trust anybody else in this company. They're incompetent. <laughs> you know, so, so it's, it's a matter of how you frame it, but you know, I think you can certainly say, you know, I, I, I was glad to be able to, to get this problem resolved because we got a good team and I think there was a misunderstanding and you know, you don't throw them under the bus, but yeah, M make it about the team. You can still make it about the team and build the relationship capital for you being the one who got it done. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and also, you know, when situations are successful, and they are most of the time in, in my former life, our policy has always been we never parade a negotiator out in front of the press and say, ah, Gary was the negotiator because the press, you know, and I'm not disparaging them, but they want to focus in on Gary. You know, oh, Gary did it. Well, no, it's a whole team that did it. So we always just say our negotiation team was successful and working with uh, the gentleman, we we're able to tend to his needs and get the situation resolved. Nobody was hurt. We're all very happy about that. And, you know, our, our team did a great job. We'll leave it at that. Yeah, that, that where does that come from? Because it, is that a conscious decision? Because it, I've really noticed in some of the books that I've read, yours and Chris's in particular, the humility after a victory. Well, I don't know if it's just our culture in general, but it, it, it just makes a lot of sense. Early in the negotiation business, there were some agencies where one or two negotiators would uh, have some success. And then all of a sudden, everybody says, well, don't talk to him until Gary gets here. And then, you know, uh, and then Gary becomes a one-man team. And then after all, the bad guys say, well, I won't talk to anybody until Gary gets here. You know, and it gets a little, it's, it's not about a person. It's about a team. And so to help with that, we don't put all the credit on one person. You know, and, and I, I always took it a step further. Like um, when I work a big siege, prison riot, and we have to right-wing militia standoff. We have to work in, in shifts as negotiators. We usually do 12-hour shifts. People are reluctant to go home from a scene that typically might only last a day or two and say, you know, we did this work for 12 hours. We're going to go home, get some sleep in the hotel, and the next shift is going to get these guys to surrender, and they're going to get all the credit. Even if people don't tell you that, you know it's on their minds. So what I always used to do is make sure they get good sleep. I would say, listen. Here's all your phone numbers. 
if it looks like they're going to surrender, we're going to call everyone up so you can come back in and be part of that process. We, you know, we, we're going to share this victory, as you say. And they, in turn, do it for the shift that, that relieved them. And it makes everybody feel, you know, part of a team. Because, I mean, I, I knew some police departments that would have to do a cooperative deal with a neighboring police department because they didn't have enough personnel. And nothing would irritate people more. So, you know, we negotiated with that guy for two days. And, you know, two hours later, he surrenders to those guys and everybody thinks they're heroes. You know, I mean, it creates a lot of bitter feelings. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. Well, in, it, in your book, you talked about how often the first negotiator who shows up is just taking a beating from the person. Potter, yeah. Yeah. It's just, they're just there to let the emotion out, you know, sort of cut the balloon and let the emotion go. And then somebody else has to step in and they're the ones who can be successful. But I mean, you wouldn't have been successful if you'd been the first one, no matter who was going to be in that first chair. Yeah. You know, it goes, goes back to that teeter totter I was telling you about, you know, you know, when the emotions are still high and the, judgment and behavior of the person is you know, really restricted that first negotiator may really have a hell of a burden to try to calm that person down and, and a follow-on negotiator can be a beneficiary and sometimes we do that purposely because we work through a lot of the hard challenging discussion and we sense that this person may be thinking about coming out now we put on a softer new voice sometimes a female negotiator is very effective you know and to sort of seal the deal close the deal. You know, there's no direct formula for that. I have to say, but it works that way sometimes. Do you find that when you were in the private sector, that business negotiations worked better with a team of people as well? Yeah, I think so. I, I think planning for, you know, a meeting, an important meeting with your team and their team, I think going over what you think they will be saying and presenting and representing and then how you will respond to those things and who on the team will be the person doing the responding or who will be the one who talks about this point, the more organized and prepared you are, I think the the better off you're, you're going to be. So, yeah, I think a team does have to, to do its homework uh, a bit. And um, in my business though, there, there, tended to be one person did most of the talking, although the team might be there because we just don't want a client or an adversary to be shopping amongst the crowd for who, who's the softest mark for me here to, you know, to focus my attention on or to demasculate somebody who is the lead person by directing all your questions elsewhere. So, you know, there has to be some discipline on the team. You know, I appreciate you asking me that, but, you know, Gary's running the team. I'll let him respond to that, you know, whatever it might be. You know, keep them keep them on base without being rude or, or argumentative. But, yeah, I, I think preparation's terribly important. Yeah, it just but sometimes seems- you can overdo it, too. It, well, go, go ahead. You said you could overdo it? Well, I think there are still some police departments in this country that when they respond to a hostage barricade situation, they have a rule that I don't disagree. I don't agree with, and it's that nobody talks to the perpetrator until the SWAT team is set up for containment. I think it's backwards. I think there's such a thing as verbal containment. In other words, the negotiator should start talking, even in route, to the person to try to start calming them down, to deflect their attention towards the negotiator, and not getting excited by watching the SWAT team show up and set up in their backyard or whatever they're doing. It also keeps them from engaging in violence against any hostages. So we get that dialogue going right away. I always used to ask the police department, what's the, what's the problem with early negotiations? They said, well, what if the perpetrator decides to surrender and we're not ready? And I said, well, you know, even an old man like me with a five-shot pistol, if somebody really wants to surrender and will do what I tell him to do, I don't think we need a SWAT team to do that, you know? if he's going to comply. So, I mean, there's obviously some people would disagree with me, but I I like a, you know, I I don't like some of the militarization I've seen in law enforcement. And I think we, we have to be thinking about communications first and foremost. And there are times where police have to use force and, and, and engage in even the use of deadly force, but we should try to conduct ourselves in a way that greatly minimizes the potential for that. Yeah, I I like the concept of talking early, and it's actually something that I've been thinking about in my business lately, because often what can happen is I 
I'm the one with the relationship and then the sales process really begins and it's a request for proposal. And then we get invited to come in and present for a finalist presentation. And then we go in and that's the first time they're meeting the whole team. And to your point about it being about relationships, you just don't get to know people enough in that one two hour meeting. You could have an all day meeting. You just don't get to know the people enough as if you've seen them early in the process. And so to be able to have the team involved early and be asking questions and getting to know them and have have it be a real team effort all the way through, you wind up seeing that you become more successful. You know, you're more likely to get that sale because the relationship's been made early on in the process. So I, I mean, it's a very different experience than driving en route to a hostage negotiation, but I can just see if we're thinking about it in the terms of personal relationships, that makes a lot of sense. Well, we should. And I mean, it's the old joke. People say, oh, you corporate guys, you're just taking clients out in the golf course to have fun. Well, yeah, but there's a value there. I mean, you know, if, if you have a client that's maybe you really haven't done much business with, but should you invite him to your company tournament or to play around the golf? And, you know, there you are for a couple hours together getting to know each other. And I, I don't think that can do anything but good unless for some reason you alienate the person by your behavior or something you say. But I, I think, um, you know, again, you always go back to people want to work with people that they like and respect. And uh, that's the first thing. I mean, you know, Stephen Kobe even says, it. you know, first seek to understand and then be understood. So by having that engagement and understanding the thinking and, the problems and issues of your client, you know, it's probably going to better position you to offer them the kind of services or product or whatever it might be that uh, that's going to address their needs. And the icing on that cake is the relationship dependability that O'Brien brings to the table. You know, so you put all that together, and uh, you know, it's it's a recipe for success. Nothing's a hundred percent. You know, I don't like the, the the negotiation gurus say you do these five things and you're guaranteed to get the business and avoid these three things and you'll never get in problem. Well, that's all well good stuff and it sells good for books, but you know, just work on the relationship is my view. Yeah, I'd keep it simple. I like that. Question about turning this internal because in your book you you listed a bunch of successful operations and a bunch that didn't go the way that you wanted them to. And one common problem is difference in perspective, perspectives, difference in perspective in the leadership. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the disadvantages I had, you know, the FBI has 56 field offices and each one has a special agent charge, which is like the, the local general. And Chicago field office has probably an assistant director in charge of the, the office. You know, when I or my unit would go out to some incident in that area, I may know that person from past engagement or I may not. You know, but if I'm going out there giving them really key advice on how we need to approach this, if I don't have a relationship, then my negotiation with that person is every bit as critical as my negotiation with you know, the right wing militia guy that we're negotiating with. So that's key. Now, in an organization where you're dealing with your bosses on a regular basis, you know, hopefully you've had an opportunity to build up that relationship and and perhaps even meet one-on-one with the boss at some point in time and say, you know, when I approach these clients, this is the way I do it. And this is how I think we should function as a team, me reporting to you in order to maximize our chances of getting or sustaining this business. And then, you know, if you get your boss to buy into that, then you're golden. But there's always turnover of bosses in there. And everybody yeah. has to come in and say, okay, my first move is to rearrange the deck chairs or mark territory, as we used to say, you know, to let everybody know I'm the boss now. And those are generally not the best of bosses because they, you know, they're more interested in how they look than what they do. But, but yeah, there is a quite a bit of negotiation that can happen internally. And something you can be sabotaged by your own team members or, you as a salesman may sell a, a service or a product, and then the, the, the production guy may say, I don't care. You know, you overpromised. I can't get that out in time. And then that creates a, a big problem because now, now you're seen as not being able to live up to what you represented to the client. So you've got to make sure that when you make those representations that the, the guy that's actually got to be the deliverer, that you're, you're setting realistic timeframes in which that service can be conducted. Yeah, that makes me think, too, because we've been talking a lot about de-escalation and building relationships. 
there are times where you do have to stand pretty firm in your beliefs and, and you come off as a very empathetic person. And yet you also come off as having very strong beliefs. And so how do you communicate in that situation where we want to be empathetic, but we're also about to hit a conflict point? Well, I don't know if I have a guaranteed way to do that, but you, you can typically carry the day with your expertise. What I would find is probably the biggest thing that helped me uh, was throughout my negotiation career, I was an instructor as well. So the fact that I'm teaching all of this all the time enabled me to educate decision makers on the scene as though they were students. You know, boss, let me explain. He says, hey, you know, this guy's wife called. She wants to talk to him. Let's put her on the phone. And I say, okay, boss, let me explain to you why we don't do that, why that could create some problems. And to be able to articulate chapter and verse on why that's contradictory to our policy can generally carry the day and bring them to a point where they say, you know, there's a lot of things I know how to do as a boss, but here's a real specialty area. And this person uh, clearly knows more about it than I do. And I'm probably very well advised to listen to them. Not every boss is that way. <laughs> you know, and I've certainly encountered those, but, but I think establishing yourself as uh, knowledgeable, reliable, and effective helps you influence decision makers, you know, even those on your own team. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's a problem that salespeople can get into sometimes where they can be very empathetic. They can ask really good questions. They can really understand the emotional motivators. But when challenged, they're not really experts on their product yeah, or on the environment that they're working in. And it's tough when you're starting out. You know, I mean, I, I'll be yeah. the first one to admit, you know, near the latter part of my career with my, my gray hair and my wrinkled face, you know, and my long track record in negotiations, it became more and more difficult for a special agent in charge to say, oh, I'm going to discount what Gary says. It's a bunch of bullshit. You know, I mean, you know, they would realize they would be doing that at their peril, you know, that while I may be several ranks below them, this was a situation where clearly the smart play is for them to follow the advice and, 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 and do what's probably going to lead to the best outcome we want. So that does become easier when you're a senior established person. When you're starting out, it's, it, it clearly is more of a challenge. But it's like when I first became a negotiator and had very little experience and I was teaching cops, I would say, listen, I don't have a lot of personal experience doing this. But what I do have is a lot of access to the information that the FBI has collected around the country and around the world. And I'm able to share that with you and to give you some of the insights they're telling me. So I made myself a valuable asset to the police departments I worked with without claiming to have the personal experience. And then, of course, as time went by, then I did have those personal, you know, accomplishment credentials to, you know, create more bona fides, you know, for whatever it was that I was advocating. Yeah. Well, you were you were the biggest expert you could be at the time. To me, that demonstrates that you were working really hard at it. And I think that often wins the day sometimes too. When, so when you don't know everything, if you can communicate that you're really passionate about it, you are learning as much as you can, and you have the humility not to pretend that you know it all already, it almost gives you more credibility. And then that's where you have a team that can support you. You know, when we were at Waco, uh, in the first couple of days, David Koresh said he would surrender with all his people if we played... Um, a national radio broadcast. I'm giving you the Reader's Digest version here. And I went to our bosses and I said, listen, he's going to record a message. Uh, we're going to listen to it to make sure it's not suicidal. And he's asking us to play it, for which in return he will surrender. I said, I don't know if he'll do it, but I think it's worth a try. And I remember the boss saying, well, what the hell do we get for it? And I said, boss, the more important question is, what do we lose for it? What do we lose? We lose nothing. We could have a big gain or we could be disappointed. And if he doesn't follow through, then we have some psychological leverage to present back to him. We did what you asked. We went out on a limb. I got my boss to release this tape and you didn't follow through. You put me in a bad situation. I'm trying to help you. And in fact, that's what happened. Uh, we played the recording over national radio and um, he, he changed his mind. God told him not to come out. And the boss was furious and behaved and, and ordered the tactical team up to demonstrate his frustration, which was, I, I thought, a terrible move. I said, you know, don't, don't be as aggressive 
in response is let us work the magic on this to see if we can basically pay the embarrassment card. You didn't follow through card, whatever you want to call it, but it's okay to do as I did there where you say like, I don't know what he'll do. You know, I'm not sure, but let's assess what it does or doesn't do for us. We use to say uh, when we take some somewhat risky action in a situation, we'd go through an assessment process. You know, have we tried this before? Has something changed to make us do this? Um, How will we know if it's successful or not? Again, going back to the team concept we were talking about before, O'Brien, that's where the team needs to leverage its thoughts and opinions. I don't want me alone making a decision. I want my team of talented negotiators, and, or in the corporate setting, you can certainly compare that, you know, to be able to, to leverage their skills and say, what do we all think collectively? And if we come to a strong consensus, then we feel really good about making that advice. You know, or I might go to the boss and say, listen, this is what I recommend, but I have to tell you, not every t- member of my team is for this. Uh, and if you want to hear that point of view, I can bring one of them in. But this is this is what I think. You know, and I think that honesty serves you well. Yeah. I, I, you're playing a long game. You might not have them act on your opinion in the short term, but you're building a lot of credibility and and you're going to win that long game. Well, Gary, I've, I have one more question for you. And this is one that just is kind of a, a curiosity for me. And it's something that the more conversations like this that I have and the, the more that I do the work that I do, I think people often feel like because we're human beings and we talk to people all the time that we know how to communicate. How do you think about communication as a skill and how should people go about developing that skill? Or is it innate? That's a good question. I mean, I think, you know, from the time we're children, we develop the ability to express ourselves, to talk about our needs and our wants and our frustrations, the whole gamut of human emotion. But I really look at it a little differently, as I mentioned before. It's, it's more about being a good listener and, and understanding others. I mean, it's, you get back what you give, is, is, I guess is what I'm, I'm trying to say. And, uh, you know, if you invest that time, I mean, you, you know, you and your wife might go to a social function and, uh, you meet somebody new for the first time and, you know, after the party, you know, your wife says, hey, you know, how, how did it go? I saw you were in the kitchen a long time. And so, yeah, I met this this new neighbor of ours. And um, what an interesting person. What an interesting background. You know, this guy does this unique surgery or whatever it might be. And, you know, they seem like a really nice people that just moved here. And, you know, we ought to go out to dinner with him. You might have a hard time articulating what specifically it is you know, make a list of the positive attributes that you recognized and, you know, you found uh, likable. But you get an overall sense of it. And we get the opportunity to learn those things about other people when we really listen to them, you know, and hear what they're doing. You know, this past weekend, my son was a Navy SEAL and a buddy of his joined my son and his family with the buddy's family down here at the lake this past weekend. And, uh, I had an opportunity to talk to this other SEAL, as I've had my son many times, and, and, you know, ask him about his experiences in Afghanistan and some of the things he did. And it was really interesting and enlightening to hear his perspective. I didn't agree with everything he said, but it was quite informative and educational for me. And I learned a lot more about him. And I really, really liked the guy. You know, I mean, he's really a hero, a super guy. But, you know, unless I'd taken the time to ask him those questions and to be attentive and you know, follow-up questions and feedback to him to encourage him to tell me more. I wouldn't have known that stuff. And um, I don't know, maybe a poor example of what I'm trying to say. But No, I, I think if I can paraphrase what I'm hearing from you, it's... Good job. It's less than, it's less about listening and more about understanding. No, it's, I think that's it's that right. seeking to understand. I mean, you have to listen to understand, but it's, I think you, you, we hear people all the time say, it's all about listening. It's all about listening, but it's like, okay, but I, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but do you understand? Do you understand the motivators? No, like that's the, the, to me, goal? that's what's the difference. The yeah, yeah. What's the goal of listening? You're right. L- listening in and of itself. Okay. You listened, but, but the goal is to better understand and appreciate and acknowledge. And you take today's political arena in this country, that's probably one of the big problems we have. We don't take the time to listen to each other. And, you know, through most of my adult life, there's 
been more middle area and then there's extremes on either end. It seems like right now it's, it, there's a fence and you're either on one side or the other side on any number of key issues. And that has really shut off the mechanisms through which we listen to each other and try to appreciate a different point of view. It doesn't mean you ultimately will come to a point where we'll say, well, you know, you're right. I've been wrong about that this whole time. You know, well, maybe that happens, maybe not. But, but people feel, you know, much better if you've taken the time to understand how they feel and you don't belittle them or jump right in with a counter argument, you know, it's hard sometimes because we all feel passionate about things and you may feel somebody make a statement that you feel is so outrageous, but you know, you've got to restrain yourself a little bit and, you know, do things like, well, that's very interesting. You know, can you tell me more about where you heard that? And that's where slowing down and self-control comes in. Yeah. You know, you know, what about, uh, you know, I've also heard people say the opposite. What do you think about that? There, there's ways of doing it and it takes a little work and, and it takes some concentration. It's, it's, it's just so easy to say something, you know, I got to tell you, you're full of crap. You know I mean? If you can say that, it's probably not going to enhance your, no, that, that ends more conversations than it. Yeah. Continues. Yeah. And you know, there's some people that clearly may, may deserve that response, but you, you know, it's really not going to bring you to where you want to get. So, yeah, I mean, I think communication is, you know, it's a two-way street. You have things you want to say that are important to you, and you hope people listen and understand. But you have to appreciate they have things that they want to say and talk about. You know, you, again, at a social event, you ask somebody, hey, where'd you go? This guys go last year for vacation. So, you know, we went, we went on a cruise. Yeah, where did you go? Tell me about it. Which islands did you like? Why did you like them? You know, what was the neatest experience you had? You know, how was the food? And you will find that if somebody had an enjoyable experience like that, they're just going to love telling you about it. They're probably not going to say, oh, Brian, you don't want to hear about my cruise. You say, yeah, I do. Tell me about it. You know, I may want to take one someday. But people like that. They, they like when someone else recognizes they've been somewhere, done something, you know, have a feeling about something. They're passionate about whatever. You know, um, one of my favorite stories, I, I spoke up at a university, at a university in Boston a couple of years ago, and it's about 200 students, you know, split male and female. And uh, no, no faculty, it was just these students. And, you know, it sort of talked to them about negotiation and communication. And then we got off script a, a bit. And, and, you know, they were asking me about relationships, you know. And I said, well, listen, I said, I wish I knew today or back when I was in college, your age, what I know now. I said, guys, you see a young lady that you're very interested in or someone else you're interested in. I don't mean to sound like an old man here. I said, you know, don't just stay in your own frame of reference. Don't tell them how great an athlete you are, you know, how smart you are, how cool your friends are, the car you drive. They don't want to hear that nonsense. I said, ask them about what they do. And even if it's the most mundane thing, you meet this sweet girl and you ask her what she does. She said, well, I don't really do anything. You said, well, do you have any hobbies? She said, well, yeah, I like to sew, you know, which is going to turn off most guys and you walk away. But instead you say, you like to sew? What, what do you do? Do you make, you make clothes? Yes. Well, that's amazing. Did you make that? No, I didn't. But I do make clothes. Okay. Well, where did you learn that? From my Nana. He says, oh, you learned from your grandmother. Were you close to your grandmother? And, you know, you, you can just take this wherever you want to go with it. You know, and at the end of the evening, you know, when you say, well, I, I hope to call you up sometime. Maybe we can get together again. She's probably going to go back to the dorm and, and just blush to her friend and say, I, I met Mr. Wright. You know, he, he, he was really interested in me and cared about me and wanted to know about me. I mean, that's, I wish I'd known that. <laughs> I mean, I feel cheated that nobody passed that wisdom to me, you know, and, uh, you know, it probably would make your, your dating life far more successful, you know, but. Well, you're enhancing the next generation's experience. Yeah. You know, I'm being a little facetious here, but there's a lot of truth to that. And, uh, you know, it's, it's tough. I try to find, you know, when I, my kids were growing up, they're all well into adulthood. It was busy life, you know, and I tried to be a good father. And I, I think overall, I, I probably passed muster. But now with seven grandkids, you know, when they're here visiting, I mean, I try to just really give them a lot of one-on-one -on -one, uh, conversation and questions and what's going on here and who's your best friend and what do you guys like to do? And, you know, you see the little faces light up and, and, and they like sharing that information. And, um, you know, it's, it's helped me learn a little bit more about the keys to this, uh, this whole process of demonstrating that you're interested and you want to know. And it's powerful. Yeah. 
I, I mean, I, the two takeaways for me are it's all about relationships and you build the relationships by really seeking to understand. And I think it's tough to sum up what over an hour now of us talking into those two simple points, but I, I think they are pretty profound. And I really appreciate your time today and, and sharing your wisdom with us. Well, happy to do it. And, uh, you know, I hope, I hope your viewers will find some value in this. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for your service with the FBI and for uh, all the good that you did. Thank you so much. Hey, folks, one last thing before you go. If you have a friend or colleague who you think would enjoy this episode, hit that little share button and send it their way. Also, if you like the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss the next one. That's it. Thanks for coming. I'm O'Brien McMahon. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.